This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is going to miss the Google Slate. Well, I'm going to miss the Google Slate. You are too, right, Doc? Uh, no. <laughs> All right. That voice you heard is Dr. Nirvan Mahati, of course, and I'm Scott Phillips. Oh, the Google Slate is dead. It is dead. Yay! We'll get onto that. In a I, I think Will is very happy about it. We're talking about Google Slate only because you make me talk about stuff that's not good about Google. Pretty much. Well, you know, Will was nodding his head in agreement. I've got some bad news about Apple. Coming uh, to that. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> this this we are off on a tangent so frequently early in these podcasts that really the tangent is the podcast, right? That is true. All right. Today on the tangent, we are going to talk about. The new deal done by an infant formula maker in China. No, it's not A2, it's not even Bellamy's, but both did benefit from the deal. We'll talk about the bubble in Botox. That's right, stay tuned for that one. Plus the end of it, it's not just bad news for Google this week, the end of an era at Apple. One of the biggest influences on the Apple kind of product suite, the ecosystem, the design, the whole box and dice is going to close the door on his career, at least in one form or another, at Cupertino. And, yes, we'll talk about the Pixel Slate, plus maybe a couple of other things. Mate, let's get on with it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We have to start, though, with some big news for a little company. Now, we know Info Formula has been all the rage here in Australia. Bellamy's was a hero, then a zero, then a hero again, and now somewhere kind of in between. A2 Milk goes from strength to strength. Allegedly a New Zealand company, but we're claiming them because that's what we do here in Australia. They're an Australasian hero, uh, so they're now in the vein of Russell Crowe and Crowded House, now officially Australian. But the newest kid on the block, I think it's the newest kid. There's so many of them being launched from time to time. I can't really keep up. I think it's the newest kid on the block is Bubs, B-U-B-S. Now, A2 Milk has the A2 protein. Bellamy's has organic Australian. <laughs> Tell our listeners, what, what's, what's Bub's point of difference again? Uh, Bub's has got goat. Uh, the greatest of all time. It's, it's basically got goat milk. Oh, goat, mi- goat milk. <laughs> goat milk. Goat milk. It's got all of Australia's goat milk. And <laughs> every, I have all of your milk. Uh, every, <laughs> I've, just got, I've got a mental picture now of all the goats of Australia lined up with uniforms in the service of Bubs Australia. So, so something approaching all of the goat milk in Australia. I've got to ask, mate. So not, I'm not, not, neither of us are nutrition experts. However, you've studied the company a little bit. Is goat's milk really a thing? I mean, obviously it's a thing. Is it? Is it something that matters? Is this just a kind of a marketing gimmick? What's the story with goat milk? Well, uh, apparently. Well, okay. So, so the disclosure is we have recommended this uh, company in Extreme Opportunities. Right. Um, You're all in on goat milk. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are on goat milk. <laughs> a couple of things. I mean, it, there are studies that say that, you know, goat milk can be good for your digestive system. And it's, okay. you know, it's actually closer to human milk than, say, cow's milk. Um, so that it's good for your babies and all those things. I think okay. the bottom line here is that, you know, they basically make infant formula and uh, they sell a lot of their infant formula abo- abroad, uh, including into China. Right. And, uh, you know, it's again selling quality Australian products abroad, um, high quality product that it can sell. And uh, it's just a small company with with a long runway. So I think that that's the thesis here. Okay. And, so and and, and it got a little bit of a push on that thesis. So they've they've done some strategic deals in China. So this is what I was going to ask. The shares are up at eighteen percent. I think they closed on was it Wednesday this week on the news that they'd done some deals for distribution in China. Now, China is kind of the country that giveth and taketh away, depending on on who you are. Uh, for a while, Treasury wines and Blackmores were. All in on China, and China was the big story until it kind of wasn't, and the share prices have suffered. Bubs is kind of treading that same path. The market loves it this week. Eighteen percent increase in the share price. That was pretty meaningful. Yeah, like yesterday it was up like thirty-one percent. Oh, thirty-one. Yeah. Wow, I saw it at eighteen. So, there you go. <laughs> uh, um, so I think that the deal here was that they've got a distribution deal with one of the largest mother and baby stores in uh, China. Okay. And uh, they're going to be, you know, basically being, you know, distributed in physical stores, and that I think gives access to customers, which is yeah. which is great. Um, it creates brand awareness, and therefore, they, you know, hopefully will will add to sales. So the the company is saying it should might deliver close to $6 million of sales by 2020 um, from this deal. Um, so, okay. you know, I, I think it's a good deal uh, for them if it works out the way they think it was going to work. Uh, well, this guy's a small too, right? Like one of yeah. the one of the benefits of being... So, small 
can be wonderful or terrible. Small means you haven't got a great balance sheet necessarily. You haven't necessarily got the brand recognition. You're not the storied, well-known kind of go-to fallback brand. Something like a Blackmore's might be, for example, or the, the Penfolds brand of wine sold by Treasury. So you don't have that strength. On the other hand, you don't have to do much to materially impact the value. So this was a half a it was $500 million, so half a billion dollar company. Uh, by by comparison, A2 Milk is a $10 billion company, so 20 times the size. So at one level, Bubs is more vulnerable. On the other on the other hand, you do a little deal like this, it really can, well, as we know yesterday, put a 30% rocket under the share price. That, that is correct. Yeah, I think that's the thing that, you know, working off a small base uh, with, a, with a novel product in the sense that, you know, it's mm. it's goat versus not uh, cow's milk and so on. So I, I think <laughs> it's the thing. All the time. So it's a little bit of a strategic placement. Um, so far, they're executing well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a risky, I would call it a high risk, high reward type of company for all the reasons that you basically mm. stated. Very, very interesting. We'll see whether it comes off. Um, those who've seen me know full well I'm not exactly a Botox customer. I don't, I don't, I don't quite have the, 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 the shiny, polished, uh, un- unemotive, non-emotive look of a Botox user. And frankly, if anyone tries to stick a needle in my forehead, they can, uh, they will, they'll be met with swift and significant retribution. However, it's something that plenty of people are doing to the point where the Botox maker, now, is it Allegan? Is that how we pronounce it? Allergan. 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 All right. You can, you can pronounce it. I'll just uh, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Is being bought out. Botox is that big these days that someone wants to buy. Is, is this a Botox deal? Is, it a, is Botox just a sideline that everyone knows but no one really cares about these days? And more importantly, mate, what does this say about the, the appetite for takeovers, mergers, and acquisitions when it comes to the stock market right now? So that's an interesting thing, right? So this is like a $90 billion deal. That's right? a lot. Um, that's 180 uh, bubsers. <laughs> <laughs> I know. For in a market which is not really that, you know, it's not really a growing market, right? right? Um, so it looks like one company buying another and hoping to, you know, do what they call synergies in, oh. in hope of getting growth. I'm not so sure about it. <laughs> Syner- synergies and hope for getting growth. That, that, that phrase has been the rocks upon which many an investment portfolio has been dashed. Uh, lots of expectation, lots of hope, lots of wishful thinking. This is, I'll take a half a step back. The pharmaceutical industry, now this is mainly an overseas industry, we should say, so not a huge amount of local impact uh, necessarily, at least not at that sort of scale, not at the $90 billion scale. To some degree, mate, this was the, during the 80s, or during the 90s, I should say, um, I was a kind of investor and I was watching the markets, as you probably were. And at that time, pharma was where everybody wanted to be. The growth was phenomenal, largely because these guys were absolutely minting it on the patents that had been um, registered and approved over the previous year or two, uh, to the point where this was just a story of of just you couldn't you couldn't help but make money. Then all of a sudden, the kind of new blockbuster breakthrough drugs pretty much dried up, right? And so your point about slow growth, it's slow growth, yes, because the population is growing slowly and the Western world's kind of not getting super wealthy, so there's not a lot of growth there. The biggest problem for growth, at least versus historical norms for the pharmaceutical industry, is just there's no new blockbuster drugs. Um, you know, as Pfizer's Lipitor, the anti-cholesterol drug was one. Botox itself was a massive deal. Uh, Viagra, of course, we all know the little blue pill. Um, I know by reputation, for the record, not not from personal experience. Uh, the, these these things were huge, and there's been almost exactly zero of them recently. That's that's right. I think again, there's a lot of um, buying going around in pharma because of that reason. That right. you know, again, blockbuster drugs are hard to come by, and um, yeah, people are basically just trying to cut, cut some fat and get some growth. Hopefully, they're not paying too much, I and mean, that's the that's risk, right? right? You right. might just land up paying a lot to buy the growth that doesn't actually come by. Well, there's no. Uh, I mean, I, I'm probably a cynic as a matter of course. I try not to be. I'm actually an optimist by nature, as most our listeners would know, but. I look at a deal like this and I think, okay, I absolutely get getting costs out, right? If you can have one CFO rather than two, one CEO rather than two, one HR department, one payroll provider, one office building, or, you know, there's going to be hundreds of them around the country, but conceptually, if you can get rid of those costs, that, I mean, that's meaningful, right? That actually does add value to the bottom line of both businesses. So that's that, that's real. You, don't, you just don't need the number of support staff offices, maybe even at a sales level, quite frankly. If your sales rep can sell two drugs rather than one, um, again, theoretically, there's many more drugs on both these companies' pipelines, but conceptually... If you can double the number of drugs you can sell or relatively, that's a pretty good place to be. So I get all that. I just don't get the whole synergy for growth thing. I really, really, at a top line level, I'm yet to be convinced that any or almost any two companies side by side, with the exception of the old software land and expand stuff, which we've talked about before. But for the for most companies, particularly $90 billion deal companies, 
it's not like all of a sudden they're going to be able to reach some customers they weren't previously. Or I mean, is, is there really synergistic growth? I hate that phrase, but I'll have to use it. Is that really even possible? Or is this kind of wishful thinking by some CEOs who are, who are kind of throwing the Hail Mary pass and trying to do something? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go with you and say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of wishful thinking here. Um, again, it's hard to see how it directly even fits into this company's portfolio, which is, which is again, a big question mark, That's right? Right, right. Like, it, it, yeah. Even, yeah. Even if it did, it's still, I still can't say the growth. It's still, yeah. I, I get the cost out stuff. I think that, I mean, cost outs can be really, really meaningful. Um, in fact, you know, look, bring it back home here for a second. The supermarket retailers in particular, so over the 80s and early 90s, they bought up effectively the entire waterfront. Woolies bought Safeway for those who live in Victoria way back in the day. Um, you know, Woolies bought um, Australian independent wholesalers out of Canberra at one point. Um, Woolies and Coles between them had something like a 40% market share in the early 80s. They're now up to about 80, 85%, depending on how you define the category. Largely a combination uh, Fleming's was bought by Woolies, of course, back in the day. Franklin's went broke, I think, twice. Um, it's it's you know you can absolutely get big by taking out competitors um simply con- concentrating consolidating the market but in this case you're not really selling you know those just are commodity products where it makes sense to only have one supermarket rather than two right that those things just make straight out sense take out a competitor take out some cost put more people in the current supermarket that makes sense two very different drugs very very hard to see how you get growth out of it yeah we'll see <laughs> real money advice from real people not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's let's go to the tech tech corner. We, we should have a, we should have a, a segment name. If I tell you, if if Will was looking after you, we'd have we'd have we'd have a, we'd have a, a logo, we'd have a, a sound effect, we'd have you want some. We having an opener? Well, is there something that's sort of you know something? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'd, People have heard our podcast, Will. They know it's not going to help. <laughs> you can only save so many people so many ways. Trust the sound effects aren't going to save us. However, however, let's talk about tech. We like to do that a little bit. And frankly, that's because most of people out there, even if you don't own tech, you certainly use tech. And the two big companies, in the, at least in the handset space, are Apple and Google. And we have news from both this week. Both bits of bad news, I would say, mate. Normally, you get to tell me how terrible Google is and occasionally I try and tell you how bad Apple is. This week... Not great news for either company, though the size of the oh, the sizes are probably are roughly you know the same because they're almost immaterial. But net negatives for both companies. The first, let's go with Apple. We'll do it alphabetically, uh, and because I'd rather talk about Apple's bad news before Google's. Um, and I will say, as I, we always do, you own Apple, I own Google. Um, such is such is the way of these things. There was there were three men at Apple a decade ago who were responsible effectively, not not solely. We we tend to lionise CEOs and, and senior execs in a way they probably don't deserve. However, and we blame them too, by the way, to, to the extent they don't always deserve. However, at Apple, hard to overstate the importance to Apple of Steve Jobs himself, of Tim Cook, his operations guy who became CEO, and of Johnny Ive, the kind of designer extraordinaire who effectively designed the iPod, had a massive hand in a whole lot of other tech before and since. Jobs, of course, moved on to a, a different plane. Tim Cook now running the company. And Johnny Ive, the guy, the design genius behind a lot of Apple's tech in the last 20 years, is leaving the company. That is correct. That's, A, surprising. Although, on one level, not oversight. Look, let's, 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 before we do get into the what, tell us a little bit about Johnny Ive. Um, tell us what he's been doing and tell, him, tell us why you think he's leaving and what it means for Apple. So, so Johnny Ive has been with Apple for over 30 years, right? He started as a designer, or he's, he's part of the what's called the Industrial Design Group. Sounds In, like, uh, what's it, what's it, Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's kind of yeah, um, film company? Go on. Yeah, exactly. These are the guys who, you know, you know, think about products that people have not even thought of yet. And this is kind of cool. This, when we think, like when I think design, I think drawing dresses or buildings on a piece of paper. Or maybe kind of working out where the icons go, but this is this is a really holistic like design in, in an Apple hardware world. It's kind of like it's it literally is imagining imagining products almost kind of it's, right. It's imagining new things, right, how they're right. going to look, how they're going to feel, how you're going to touch them, how you're going to use this them. This is the guy who literally said, "Hey, I'm going to yeah. design a music player, and it's going to look and feel like this, and here's how big it's going to be, and here's how." The, the, remember the old scroll wheel. Well, you do, of course, because you're an Apple fan. For anyone listening, try and remember. I know we're, we're 20 years past that now, right? Whatever it is. Think back to when you first touched the scroll wheel and you could literally get things to move on the screen by moving your finger across a solid surface. Exactly. Like the, the, right. it, it's, it's, so, it's so common now. I could never convince my, my six-year-old that this thing is important or interesting or we actually had a world without it. 
But I can still remember using the thing, and, and I can remember my sense of wonder and almost disbelief. Yeah. When he, he literally designed from scratch, knowing a little bit about electronics, a little bit about design, a little bit about how humans would use these devices, the old human... Was human human computer there interaction or human interface design? There you go. Right. He kind of I won't say he necessarily gave birth to the whole idea, but he certainly is one of the greatest exponents, certainly of our generation and by definition almost every generation because computers aren't that old. Um, he's the guy, right? He's the guy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you think about the designing the iPhone, the touch screen, the the if you think about it at that time, the BlackBerry was around, right? right. And the BlackBerry had a physical keyboard. I love that phone. because <laughs> everybody basically thought that you need yeah, to yeah. have a physical keyboard. I, I was, I've told this before, I was made to use an iPhone when I changed companies and I was dirty as. I was like, no, I, I like my Blackberry. It's got a physical keyboard. It's yeah. great. It's easy to use. Yeah. I'm never going to use this bloody iPhone thing. It's all a bit of a you know hype and a fad and all that kind of stuff. And I, and as much as I, I mean, I, I have nothing against Apple. Um, I like I like my Google phone, but I have nothing against Apple. Within about a month of using it, I'm like, oh man, I was so wrong. This thing is great. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, this is this is a guy who has been, you know, behind every Apple product, every successful Apple product. Um, he's also the voice of so many of the ads that Apple do. Oh, really? Does, right. You know, like when they launch a new product, there's like a Johnny Ive basically talks in his English, you know, special English accent <laughs> about about you know. I did not know that. He even thinks like you know, like the you know the aluminum in this you know Apple <laughs> computer. So it's this is really like, I mean. The end of an era in one way. Um, at the same time, I, you know, what the interesting thing is that for the past five years, he was basically busy designing Apple's Apple Park, like what looks like a spaceship. Sorry, what's Apple Park? Might help us with that. That's basically Apple's next or, or um, new headquarters in in um, in California, basically. So Apple Park basically was the last thing that Steve Jobs approved of before he died. Right. And, um, you know, then Apple spent about five or six years building this huge spaceship like building. Mm. It's the new headquarters. So he spent, you know, most of his time working on 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 building the interior and the exterior and getting that designed. Um, in, in many ways, if you think about it, like I mean, there's a there's a whole slew of designers at at Apple, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, given the fact that Johnny was not associated directly with say, the Apple Watch, for example, it was Apple Watch was designed while he was busy mm. designing Apple Park. Um, so this this marks, in in my mind, this is a way of this guy saying, well, you know, I wanted to do different things, and mm -hmm. I've, you know, I wanted to design a building. Um, this opens up the possibility for him to do things other than just doing things with Apple and just doing things in the consumer, uh, I guess, consumer hardware space, mm -hmm. and. Um, his first customer is going to be Apple. The he's 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 going to be still there for some time with Apple before he moves over to this company called Love Form. His uh, along with him is there's going to be Mark Newson, who you know has famously designed Qantas's uh, uh, um, Skybeds. It's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So those two guys are going to go form their own company. They're going to have Apple as a customer. Maybe they're going to design you know things like the Opera House or <laughs> something mm -hmm. equivalent, or some bridges mm -hmm. or some buildings and other things. Uh, uh, in addition to consumer hardware, you know, uh, uh, so internally I felt that you know the worst thing this can happen is they might you know uh, think Johnny I've designed say the Fitbit or the next generation. <laughs> that that would be really not good <laughs> because because you were just you were just. Um uh, biologically driven to hate everything that competes with Apple or or something else? Well, it's not just, you know, when I look at the Fitbit, I think, like, oh, this, I just don't like this product. But wouldn't, it, but wouldn't it be cool if Johnny Ive could actually improve? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the, design, the, the kind of, at some level, I would say every designer, but some designers have got to say, you know what, what I really want to do is go and take a thing that's broken and make it beautiful. Like, you know, at some level, you know, Ive was able to create, not so an Apple music player that was broken, but was able to bring beauty to a whole lot of stuff that otherwise might. So, you know, taking the, the Blackberry and turning it into something beautiful like the iPhone. At some level, I mean, there's got to be something I'm a Fitbit user, so maybe I'm biased and I don't really care about Fitbit and the shares. But at some level, if you, you know, wouldn't it be nice to think he could go and actually make Fitbit a, a nicer device? Wouldn't that kind of be a net positive overall? Well, no. <laughs> because it competes with Apple? <laughs> well, not just because, you know, philosophically, I think <laughs> the, um, to me, like good design actually lives in... In, in three things. It lives in hardware, mm -hmm. it lives in software, mm -hmm. and it lives in the interaction between the hardware and the software. Right. right? I think this but is... if I could fix that, 
That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, but this is a cultural thing. It's a company thing, right? I mean, there's no way I just can go and fix Google's, you know, human-computer interaction. I mean, there's just no way Google is going to ever learn that. <laughs> it's just not in that company's DNA. Its DNA is in how to steal people's data. Oh, so it's going to do that. Oh, here we go. Right? We'll cut the and, podcast, and, don't and, worry. And, and Fitbit just doesn't, you know, this, these are things, I think these are long-lasting, um, it, it's like it's people culture to some extent. So right. it's this is hard to recreate and, you know, this is basically what, what, what separates Apple mm-hmm. from the rest. That's the question I have, and, and I'm not expecting to get a, a, um, an unbiased answer from you. But at some level, the last 20, 25 years of Apple's dominance has been a Jobs Cook Ive co-production. I mean, you know, at some level, yes, there are people that work for them. They're great, fantastically talented people who I'm sure will be horribly offended by my characterization. At the same time, Jobs was famously dictatorial. Cook wasn't necessarily, but certainly was a brought some level of genius to operations and supply chain. You know, part of the ability of Apple to do so much at such low cost, relatively speaking, and so well is due to Cook. And the whole design thing, while I've ran the team, I'm sure there are other people who contributed, but no one really, you know, argues that I wasn't the creative brain behind a whole lot of this stuff. In a world where, yeah, Cook's now the CEO, and I'm not underplaying that at all, but he, you know, he's he's not only the operations guru. Uh, I'm sure he retains a, a keen interest. Jobs is gone. Ive is going. This is probably the biggest. Oh, I don't want to overstate it, but is it not close to the bigger one of the bigger tests in Apple's history now to try and prove that it can continue to not just survive, it can survive, of course, but innovate successfully without those kind of really strong-willed men with great reputations and, frankly, a lot of um, instinctive greatness that they got to lord it over everyone else and say, no, we're doing this thing because I see the future. If Ives' replacement is not of the same ilk, does that run some degree of risk for Apple? Are you, are you not just a little bit concerned about an Apple post-Ive? Um, I am. Like, I mean, you know, like Ives leaving is is not a good news. Uh, I, I, I take that. But I think, um, you, you know, I, I, I call Apple one of the greatest companies to actually live. You do. Um, <laughs> and I actually believe that in the sense that, you know, its contribution to mankind is, is uh, you, know, you know, at par with many others or probably one of the greatest. If we didn't have Apple, we couldn't spend all day on Facebook. That's a actually think well, about that. You wouldn't have Facebook. You wouldn't have things like Uber. You wouldn't have the, so many things that we have. The whole entire... So app- if we had to give up Apple and Facebook, would that be net negative or net positive? Oh, getting rid of Facebook. <laughs> getting rid of Facebook, I think, is a net positive for the world. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe without um, Apple, maybe there's no Facebook. That, that could be a win. Yeah, but you no, know, but, 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 but I think I think the greatness of a company mm. is its ability to transform over time. Yeah, totally. And uh, I think if Steve Jobs has done one thing right, he mm-hmm. might have you know made sure that... Um, that you've got the right people in the right place yep. who will ensure that the company can transform over time. Well, he's, he's done bloody... I mean, you know, he's been out, gone for, what, a decade or so? Almost a decade now, and, right? And mm-hmm. Apple's done very, very well without him. Yeah. And I guess the next generation question, though, is, you know, Cook is now the CEO, maybe for not all that much longer. Ive is now going. This is where the rubber hits the road on that question, right? Is Did, did those guys leave a legacy beyond their own genius? And I would think the answer would be yes. I mean, you know, Microsoft is a great example of that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they've got you know Satya Nadella reading, leading it and leading it fabulously. Um, sometimes you just need to do that, right? And good companies would create, would hire the right people. It's it's a lot about the culture, as mm-hmm. I said. The, if the culture is right, if the design centric culture is there, if this the hardware software integration is there, then you've hired the right people to read the company to the next sort of generation. Then sometimes new blood is actually what you need, right? You yeah. you want new blood to actually bring that's, new that's ideas. That's the question. So Steve Ballmer took over, so back to Microsoft, Steve Ballmer took over from Gates and was roundly panned for a very long time as leading Microsoft into a kind of a morass of mediocrity, my, my phrase, but it's alliterative, so I like it. Um, Nadella, in theory, is the great hope coming out of the company now to restore or, or maybe just simply deliver on some of that promise. Uh, you know, Microsoft, by, some people would actually criticize Microsoft, say it's not that business. Bormer is evidence that post-Gates, this thing was a rudderless ship for a very long time. And Nadella is less about the evidence of that great um, culture than, than a Hail Mary pass thrown by the board to try and fix Bormer's mistakes or vice versa. To what degree do we, do we you know, can we draw that straight line and say, well, they've got a good leader now, they had a good leader then, therefore this is cultural? Or is it just a case of they were lucky enough, fortunate enough, 
clever enough to pick the right guy to lead the company. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's a little bit of both because, I mean, Balmo gets a lot of criticism, but I, I would say that, you know, the um, cloud for Microsoft did not happen overnight, mm. right? So it is true that Nadella was leading the cloud division, yeah. but it was approved and was done and was a strategy enacted during Balmer's time. Right. Balmer did miss uh, mobile, but so did Bill Gates. Mm. I mean, Bill mm. Gates was a consultant and yeah, involved in product yeah. decisions. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, he missed it too. So, I mean, you know, the thing is that big companies, great companies may miss things, but, mm-hmm. you know, if they have great balance sheets and if they've got great products and if they've got, you know, people still using them, they, I think they have the opportunity to, um, I guess, reinvent themselves. I'm going to ask you an absolute tangent question, mate, because I like to do these things. You were talking about mobile and the fact Microsoft missed it. And my, my immediate thought, as you mentioned, that was that was one of the great fault lines of technology kind of advancement, right? Or maybe a step change, pick your analogy. But effectively, that's when everything took a 90-degree turn. And you're either on the boat or you weren't on the boat. You either got mobile, you led the charge. Uh, Microsoft tried with the Zune and failed. They tried with their own phone and failed. Apple took off. Google probably had the good fortune or good judgment to buy Android and, and kind of maintain their place in that. Otherwise, it could be a very different story. So maybe Apple's smart. Maybe Google's lucky. Maybe Microsoft's either unlucky or not smart or something else. So th- there are there are from time to time, and we haven't seen a huge amount in our kind of modern internet world, but that's one really, really key step change slash 90-degree turn that the market took or technology took and that people either missed or, or got. If you're a betting man, What's the next one or the current one? What, what do you see? You're a technologist by, by trade, by training, by interest, by investing style. If I was to say to you, what's the next big 90-degree turn that technology is likely to take? It can be, and I, this is a very vague question without notice, so listeners, if Doc uh, doesn't answer immediately, it's my, my fault, not his. But if you said, look, you know, here's the, here's the next big trend that is, that is you know, sizable enough to be the equivalent of moving from desktop to mobile, and not sorry, necessarily in that space necessarily, but what would you, if you had a couple, if you got one, you'd sort of say, hey, here's what you should be watching out for, or here's what I'm excited about, or here's what I've been thinking about? So I think the, the biggest one, at least in consumer tech, would be, uh, in my mind, it's wearables. Okay. And that's already happening, right? I mean, it's happening in, in, in different shapes and forms, but it's still tethered in many ways to the phone. Uh, which is um, whether you talk about AirPods or you talk mm. about, you know, you know wearables like a Fitbit or Samsung Watch or the Apple Watch. Um, I, I think with 5G, we're going to probably get to a stage where we become untethered from the phone. Mm-hmm. And that might bring in things like, you know, an Apple Glasses, for example. And that opens up um, a whole lot of possibilities in augmented reality and virtual reality. So I think that's where we are likely okay. headed. And... And I think then the really wearables is that, is that code for glasses specifically? Is that, is that the is that the big wearable that's going to have a, a be, be meaningfully kind of you know the, the step change that we're thinking about? Well, uh, I think we are on the way to replace the phone with something, right? right okay. And and that could just be something literally like, replace or augment. I, I think replace. So we literally uh, leave the phone at home, take the glass or the some, whatever the wearable thing is. Yeah. Wow. So okay. so right right now you can you can wear the Apple Watch mm-hmm. and not have the phone with you. Right. And it, it basically will work for you. Okay. Right. So my my Apple Watch does not need the phone. Right. Right. It's tethered to the phone in the way that you know it's got the same number, mm. but that's mm. that's just a I think that's just an artificial. Um, uh, connection it's right the now. eSIM technology, is that right? Yeah, it's the eSIM technology. So okay. we're probably got, we are going to eSIMs. Okay. Um, uh, with the eSIMs, you know, uh, effectively you can have any phone number associated with any device as long mm-hmm. as it's got the eSIM in it. So I, I think that's where we're headed. Okay, interesting. Uh, there you go, Phil. You heard it here first. Keep an eye on wearables. I assume you're going to say Dr. Apple is the company leading the charge. They're most likely to. But if you had to pick a second, is there anything? Is there a company you're watching? Is there a particular tech you're looking out for? Just to give our listeners something else. I know I'm asking lots of questions without notice here, mm. but um, you know, if you had to put your money, a couple of chips, you put most on Apple, I would guess. But feel free to say no. On top of that, as well as that, instead of that, what would you be looking at? So I don't think there is any, I think right now the way the consumer technology works is basically Apple is going to create an industry Mm -hmm. which others are going to follow. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it has been ever since the iPhone. Mm. And it's hard to- Come on, Microsoft invented the tablet. <laughs> it invented a tablet until Microsoft it bas- Newton. Come on, dude, that was the yeah. first one out of the out of the gate. Yeah, but none of these companies basically are able to create mass accepting <laughs> devices, right? So it's basically up, it's up to Apple, Apple to actually create an industry, um, uh, get people to accept it, and then the other copycats come. So which is fine. I, I wish um, I had enough time to unpack that because there is there is something really fascinating about exactly that idea. The, the idea of creating a product or a technology is only part of the exercise, right? Actually creating something that people 
want to use, can make to be easy for people to use in a way that people want to use it. Back to Johnny Ive himself. Yeah. That that very idea of yeah, Microsoft was literally the first tablet computer, right? Yeah. Back in nineteen eighty something. Um, a combination of the tech wasn't ready, broadband wasn't ready, Wi-Fi didn't exist, all that stuff. There was reasons why a tablet computer never took off. Well, the Palm Pilot. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so That was are, huge for a little yeah, while. There are, there are companies which create stuff, yeah, right. but they can't create an industry right, right, um, right. And, and, and a market. And then there's Apple, which can basically create an industry yeah, yeah. and a market, right? Without necessarily having to invent the tech, they're kind of seeing the potential. It's almost, it's almost, yeah. I have in my head the, a vision of, of Apple going around a, a virtual kind of digital scrapyard. And taking the things that are there and kind of making this new thing out of it, in, in not not necessarily in a Frankenstein kind of way, but in a sense of like, hey, we could use that touchscreen and that idea of a handheld calendar and the idea of a phone, and if we kind of jam these together, look what we could do that people will love. It's almost that, right? It's it's basically it's. I think as I was saying, right? I think the, the greatest thing about Apple is basically figuring out the human computer interaction. Mm -hmm. But everybody else thinks about the technology, right? So you can yeah. have if you can have great technology, but if it's not usable, it's not good, mm. right? So I think that's where Apple excels, and I think that's basically Apple's DNA mm -hmm. is to make stuff usable and accessible. Very cool. I think we should move on. Yeah, let's talk about other stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Try and contain your excitement, Doc. I am very excited. I'm like like really pumped. Should we talk about ASIC? No. No? No. What, what do you want to talk about? Slate. Slate. Oh, the, we are, we are, the, we are the Microsoft Online uh, portal. I've got a segue too. We are slated to talk about Slate. Oh, tell you what. You're on fire. Maybe you should be hosting the podcast. Um, unfortunately, you know more about tech than I do, so I'm better to ask the questions. So, yes, I, as much as it pains to, to me to admit it, Google's Slate, which was their tablet, the Pixel Slate, apparently is dead. It's not apparently; it is actually <laughs> well, dead. Well, it still kind of exists now, but it's been it's been slated. Use <laughs> your use your pun for uh, for for death. It's it's uh, it's it is no more. It is no more. So, I mean, the news here basically is that uh, Google is not going to try to compete with the iPad mm. because it can't compete mm. with the iPad. Um, uh, there's a difference here. They're still going to be releasing the Android OS for tablets right, okay. for the other people to yep, actually make the tablets, but it's just not going to compete in the hardware space. So the Pixel range, according to Apple, let's go Apple, geez, according, to, uh, according to Google, uh, it was supposed to be the best-in-class version of how the software could be effectively used well, right? The idea was kind of, we will make the the kind of, pro, not a prototype, I don't know what you call it, it's probably a technical name for it, but we'll make we'll make the perfect design, the perfect version of this stuff so the software works as well as it should with the phone that it should work for, it, A, to give consumers a choice, but also B, to give the, give the hardware makers something to kind of, not about aspire to necessarily, but certainly compare themselves against or, or just to give some sense of this is what the perfect version of an Android-powered device might be. That's kind of a laudable goal. You can argue about whether or not that was ever supposed to be a commercial success or how successful it was supposed to be. I'm sure Google would say, well, gee, if we sold a million of them, we'd be pretty happy. They couldn't make tablets work. Here's the interesting question. I, like, you and I have a very different view on, on tablets. It's probably because uh, we have our different software and hardware allegiances. But uh, this is either a sign of Apple dominating a market or it's a sign of a market not really being that big. I have to say, I did a quick search for tablets the other week for my mum. And there's kind of, there's the iPad. There's half a dozen different versions of Samsung, and there's a couple of little bitsy cheap tablets, and a Kindle Fire and a Lenovo tablet, and a couple of a few little tiny things. Other than that, kind of Apple's got it to itself, which either means it's it's swamped the market, and when it, when the tablet market becomes huge, Apple wins, or maybe there's not enough sales in the in the category to go around. So I have a different answer to that, uh, and I think I I'm call very it. Uh, <laughs> and so, so the market is is it's not as big as the phone, but it's a pretty big market, yeah. right? Um, and aside from that, I think it's it's a little bit of ARP, uh, Apple's marketing genius that right. has actually killed everybody else. Okay. So I think one of the things that Apple did previously is that did not have low cost product. Mm. With the iPad, they changed that. Okay. So basically, they have a range of products which basically ranges from like you know two hundred fifty dollars to all the way to like you know. Thirteen hundred, fifteen hundred dollars, right? Jeez, or yeah. like two thousand. Yeah. So they got the premium end. Yeah. 
And for those people who are going to buy the the Androids for cheaper, mm -hmm. it was the cheaper iPad. Right. So okay. basically, so crowded them out. They've basically yeah, they've crowded them out, right? And there's okay. no real differentiation in the software from that Android can offer. And then at the other end, I think you you can see how well Surface has done, right? And the Surface mm. is not really a tablet, mm. but can be used as a tablet, sure, right? And it's mostly more of a uh, I guess a, in the desktop, mm. sort of you know the laptop. Yeah, yeah, it's a detachable laptop rather it's than a, a pure tablet, right? Right, but it's a detachable thing. So those people who mm. want to be in the un Windows environment, mm. they've got that. Oh, and yeah, Apple okay, has basically enough. squeezed out the Android guys yeah. um, out of the market, yeah. right? And, you know, it, it could actually do that on the phone. That would be very amazing. You know, well, that's, that's what led me to think about this. I mean, if you think about the phone, I mean, there's two, there's two questions here, right? We're talking about the Pixel, which is Google's hardware. In in phones, yes, there's a Pixel phone. I happen to own one. But, you know, the, 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 Android, hard, hard, the Android software, sorry, powers much, much larger share of a whole lot of other devices yeah. than, than Apple's iOS does just because it's a single manufacturer and Apple has a lower handset share than it has a tablet share. Mm. Um, so that, that's kind of my question. At some level is, yeah, I mean, this either goes one or two ways, right? Either, you know, either the hardware makers have never been able to replicate their success in phones or Apple's never been able to replicate its success in tablets into phones. Either way, it's kind of interesting next five years in terms of how this might evolve. If you're a betting man, do you think Apple will gain share of that lower price segment in phones or is it always going to be too big a market? With, I mean, phones are mass. Tablets are relatively specialized, at least a big market, but, but much, much, much smaller than phones. Is it just the nature of the market or is there something else likely to go on? So I think the, the actually, the, uh, to answer the second question first, I think the tablet market is going to grow okay. because the way Apple has been positioning it, and, and you can see that from the surface as well, is that mm. it's becoming, becoming a replacement right. of standard desktops okay. or standard laptops. Yep. So I think the, the, the tablet market is going to grow. Um, this is basically, I, I, as, I, as I said in one of my tweets, um, I, I think the Pixel phone is going to be gone in a couple of years as well. Right. I think it is very hard. It's just, I think hardware is just hard mm. for um, for Google, given that, you know, it's not really Google's primary business, mm -hmm. right? And it's competing against um, its licensees, right? So it's yeah. basically, uh, Google Pixel is competing, Pixel Slate or whatever, it's basically competing with Samsung at, this, right. at that price range, right? And if you make the price lower, it's basically competing with Huawei mm. or, or, or Mate something. And plenty of others, Oppo and other things. And you know, Oppo and pl plenty of others, right? Yeah. So... Um, it's not Google's core competency, mm. and Google cannot really offer anything substantially different mm. um, compared to the other guys. Right by definition. Right? By definition, the, the Android OS right. is, is the OS is the OS is the OS is the OS. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's just Google's realization that, that you know um, if I if I have to say something, I think the whole their whole strategy here has been about trying to gain share into the home, and it's mm. and, and they have been successful there, right? So the Google yeah, it's Home America. Yeah, so Google yeah. Home is successful, yeah. and and that's basically a new and that's one something that Apple has dropped the ball on mm, really mm, mm. is is trying to gain share into that and then getting into sort of the home market and building an mm, mm, IoT mm. share, so Internet of Things share, and uh, and and having a share in the in the voice market. Mm. So I think those are Apple. Uh, I think Google's primary interest, and I think so. I really think that Pixel Phone is going to be gone in in a year or two years. I think that, you know it's again not selling very well. So and I don't really. I, I can, maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased, but I don't think Google ever really expected to be a market-killing phone. It was always supposed to be a top-end, best-case kind of live version. I mean, I'm sure they would have happily taken it if there had been a rural success, they would have taken it. But it was never kind of designed to sell mass volume, right? It was always supposed to be, a, hey, here's what it could look like if you guys, as hardware makers, pulled your socks up. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, but I mean, that I have a hard time buying that argument, right. largely because, I mean, you know, what's wrong with Samsung, Samsung's phone on yeah. Android, right? Yeah. I mean, it's basically Android oh, running. Except for the bloody bloatware. Yeah, well, that's, what, that's actually why I bought a Pixel. I, like, I'm, I, I like Google. I don't, I don't love Google. I mean, we play up the rivalry just because it's fun for the podcast. I like Google. I, I use lots of Google services. I'm more than happy with my phone. If if Samsung would sell me a non-bloatware kind of all that, or any, any any of the makers, if they could literally say, I'll give you the phone without the rest of my my you know company crap, I'd take it in a heartbeat. Yeah, but I mean, every every company is going to do a little bit, you know, they're going to do something on the camera. So those are the things right, that right. they have to differentiate. Otherwise, there's no way to differentiate them, right? Yeah, so everybody's going to do something with the camera, a little mm -hmm. bit here, a little bit there. That's and kind of hardware. I, mean, I suppose the software that goes with the it's hardware. It's the hardware and the software. So yeah, they're okay. going to do a little bit there. Otherwise, they have nothing to sell. Sure, I mean, that's sure, their sure. problem, right? But I don't so, want to use the Samsung store, and I don't want to use Samsung's mail clients. Like, go away. Let me use the, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that's my uh, personal. Let, that's my let, personal. Yeah, let's, let's just you know. Yeah, tell me you, 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 like, yeah. you like to suffer, so it's your problem, really, right? Uh. <laughs> you can, don't, never give a sucker an even break, yeah. I reckon. 
Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, talk about giving suckers an even break. That's actually a pretty good segue this time. I'm getting better at this. You're getting awesome. Mate, another 150-odd podcast, and I will be slightly better than I am now, which is good. <laughs> um, speaking of giving a sucker an even break, ASIC, the corporate regulator. So ASIC gets a hard time from a whole lot of people for a whole lot of reasons, and often those reasons tend to lie around the fact that they haven't exactly shown themselves to be super active when it comes to really getting stuck into the, the wrongdoers. They've, they've settled with the banks rather than prosecute them. They occasionally get some low-grade kind of targets and successes, but it hasn't exactly, you know, those who criticise it want them to see bigger, you know, really marquee action that, that meaningfully changes the way financial services are provided in the country. And that makes a whole lot of sense. We might just get that. This week, two big stories in the AFR. One was, uh, and the head, I'll read the headlines for the fun of it, watch us grill the banks over their lending practices, says the ASIC chief. The second one, ASIC to ban toxic products from August. Mate, I love these two headlines. If they are even slightly true, I will do cartwheels. I'm just super excited that ASIC is finally basically standing up to the bad guys, right? Like, I, And not the banks are all bad guys or every product provider is a bad guy, but gee, it'd be nice to know that ASIC was successful in really you know, actively being involved in fixing the biggest problems that we have in the financial services sector. So let's let's go through this. The first thing, grilling the banks over their lending practices, I've got to say, as much as I'm happy with the headline, I then found out they're going to put a psychologist in the boardrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I love psychologists. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a doubter of, of the, the value of, of, of psychology or psychiatry at all, so let me put that on the record. Um, this is not about me being, you know, poo-pooing that whole thing. That being said, I don't know whether a corporate regulator's strongest weapon is a psychologist in a bank boardroom, is it? Oh, I, I don't know. So I'm going to first correct one thing. Okay. One of those headlines are was actually from, not from the Finn, but from the oh, Sydney Morning Herald. Sorry, thank you. So let, let's you know give the credit where yes, the headline yes, came yes. from. Um, well, <laughs> well when, when I saw it, my first reaction was, really, psychologists? <laughs> I mean, they, uh, okay, again, they're important. And, and, and yeah. as a former scientist, <laughs> I have huge respect for you know people, right, people right. doing work in, in science. Well, there's some argument here. Like the, the, the flim... Oh, I was going to say flimsy. <laughs> um, I almost said Freudian it. Freudian slipped. Oh, exactly. uh, it slipped out. But you didn't, so that's good. Yeah, but I didn't. The, the argument here is that, you know, people with, uh, with behavioral uh, mm. aspects, uh, behavioral learning, like we, as, as we say in investing, right, mm. Beha- behavior is a real oh, big, huge. big yep. huge part. Yep. And, and maybe people who sit in the boardrooms of these companies, um, behavior, you know, falling in the usual, you know, behavioral traps is a big deal. And if mm. somebody mm. can, some from the outside. So I get the logic. Uh, although you know honestly i think the bigger problem uh, that asic should be looking at and and that doesn't really really require a behavioral aspect uh, mm. behavioral expert there is you know are the boards are there to oversee right and are they doing that are yeah. they actually keeping the shareholders interest in yeah. so i think it's it's regulating um the stuff that we expect them to regulate yeah okay is is what I would like to see, you know. Uh, um, you know, are the insiders following the trading rules that are there? Are they, you know, there's the disclosures up to the mark and things mm-hmm. like that. Those things to me mean a lot more. But maybe there's some benefit like to this. I don't know. I, I'm 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 op- yeah. I'm going to be open minded, and say uh, I am willing to see um, what's going to happen. I will I will absolutely line up behind that one. I think I I'm. My my biggest concern, I think, well, look, you know, we're we're all experts, right? And I'm I'm mindful that ASIC does actually is the genuine expert, where I'm just a, a commentator on the outside. But it's hard to uh, and, and behavioural um, understanding, measuring, um, catching behavioural issues. I think is really really important. I don't think there's anybody who really watches the banks closely with any sort of critical eye who doesn't know or think they know. The basic issue is just incentives, right? Like for all the problems with the banks, for all the things that we can do or not do, for all the psychologists in the boardrooms. You fix the incentives, don't you? Fix the behaviour. Like, it, it, I, I, I'm happy with. So I'm happy with the psychologist being there. Yes, but it's like, so guys, you're going to do nothing around the incentive stuff until, or unless your psychologist says you to do something. It feels to me like they know there's a problem. We can reasonably assess what that problem is and diagnose the problem. And yet they're saying, yeah, but despite that, we'll send to the psychologist. I, I'm a little bit mindful they are. As much as I just said, I'm glad they're taking action. Is it really action, or is it kind of, oh, we'll spend another twelve months doing some research analysis? Couldn't couldn't they make some changes now? 
Oh, that's true. This, well, this could be like this looks like another Royal Commission Part Two sort of Doesn't thing, it? right? Um, yeah, uh, I think maybe 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 the tack here is that the incentives are the problem, but you know you need someone there <laughs> from the outside who says, yeah. okay, look, look, you're thinking too much about your incentives, yeah. right? Maybe you need to think a little bit, you know, especially for things like banks, which are right. really critical to sort of the way our economy works, mm. right? You know, it's not just about making the bank insiders happy or the shareholders happy they mm. also are actually got very important they're very important stakeholders in the economy right mm. so they they need to take a little bit of a broader perspective a societal well, kind of too perspective. big to fail right that's that's kind of i mean at some level yeah. if our banks fail on mass the economy falls over exactly which is why i think they have a societal responsibility mm. as well mm. right so i mean um and then most companies will say that they you know they do things for the society at large yep. um but uh, yeah uh, I mean, something probably is better than, you know, here's, maybe the, here's the, here's the uh, shining bright light here. Yeah. If you put 20 people, uh, 20 experts in one particular behavioral subject who hopefully are going to be outsiders, right? There's a little bit more outsider oversight on the bank boards yeah. or, or yeah. not just bank boards, but the boards of these 20 companies. Um, maybe it's a net positive instead of having, you know, more, uh, more of the same. Can't hurt, I suppose. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I, you know what? So, he, so that's that. What I do absolutely love, unquestionably, is the fact that ASIC are reported to be moving on what they call toxic financial products, and these are the stuff that's designed to make the providers of the products rich at the expense of you, me, and our listeners, mate. And I, this can't come soon enough. Now, you're a little more cynical than I am, I think, uh, about whether or not this gets pushed through, but. I have a just a massive, massive issue with many of the products, many of the companies, frankly, in our system that exist seemingly to separate us from our hard-earned rather than actually make us money. Anything that separates the difference between investors actually making – investing literally rather than just straight-out gambling, there's a whole lot of stuff that is – frankly, it looks like – you know, we, it looks like investing because it's offered by people in shiny suits at the top of expensive towers in our capital cities rather than by the bookie at the local race course. But any other circumstance would be exactly that. If you're betting on the price or the movement of a share price over 12, months, 12, sorry, 12 hours, um, I don't know how that's anything other than gambling, despite the fact we let it be called investing because it's linked to the ASX or something, something else. It just strikes as a whole lot of stuff there that is at best gambling, at worst, frankly, closer to... It's just basically separating us from our cash, right? Something they know is not going to work um, for most people, and yet they're allowed to, they're licensed to provide that kind of stuff. I hope that's the first stuff ASIC gets rid of. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's good news, as you said. They, they, and there's some speculation out there that they're they're targeting certain derivative products and certain forms of insurance, mm-hmm. or what they is called junk insurance. Yes. Um, CFDs were contracts for difference were mentioned in the AFR article as being a potential target for the for ASIC. Yeah, so it's called. I just put that as under the derivative you did. product <laughs> category, um, a large category. Yep. Um, so also binary options uh, oh. was. Was was not as another thing. Um, I, I think this is good because you know. Here's the thing, right? I know actually of people who, you know, trade who would trade say CFDs, <laughs> and and without actually knowing anything about the underlying. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's not just. I mean, it's no different to going putting money on red or black at the casino. Yeah. So you know, and and I think a lot of people basically treat. Um, uh, stocks and and companies as basically the racehorse, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, in, yeah. in a casino, in, in in a racetrack, or or as a roulette in the in the casino. Um, so I, I think this is this is a good move, and it would hopefully um, save people yeah. from uh, their own, you know, selves, which which is, I think is, is is a good thing. I, I think you know we need to applaud the regulator for doing things that are in the interest of uh, market participants, especially in the interest of uh, a lot of retail market participants, right? They, because, you know, they, they would be putting their um, hard-earned money on yep. on things that actually might not give them any returns. So. We, we regulate lotteries as lotteries. We recommend, we regulate betting as betting. It's, investing is one of the, investing in air quotes, it's one of these, if, if you go and put $1,000 on Reddit at the casino, you're a problem gambler. If you go and put $1,000 on a CFD on the ASX, you're an investor. Yeah. And it, it 
drives me mad. It, it, it's the they get a lot of. Uh, I said yesterday they they make political spin doctors look like they're you know innocents. Um, when when you dress something up, which is effectively it's just straight out gambling, and you call it investing, you say it's on the ASX, and you you know you use all those marketing tricks to make it look sophisticated and clever and what the smart rich people do, and so you should do it too. It's yeah. at the bare minimum, you know, even if you don't outright ban the products, for example, at the mm. bare minimum, you need to have like some way of ensuring that the person who is actually participating participating in that product mm-hmm. is actually aware of what that product's risk reward yeah. profile is, right? Yeah, yeah, like the outcomes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so if, yeah. if they understand it, then they're willingly gambling. I guess, you know, everybody's an adult and they, you know, mm-hmm. in the market, they're adults at least. And, and therefore, they, you know, they want to lose their money. They, it's their choice. Mm-hmm. We can't stop them. Yep. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't as a society. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> it's, but at some level, these, these products are, are almost exactly structured to separate people from their money. It's hard to it's hard to argue anything other than that when it's literally a, you bet. I, so if you and I walked into a room with 10 bucks each mm. and the house got to take 10% of every bet and both of us stayed there till one of us lost our money, then let's say let's say you win, right? We own 10 bucks each. By the time we finish, you walk out with 10. I walk out with zero. Yeah. And the house gets 10. And you think, well, in what, in what world is that a financial product that should be licensed and regulated by a, by a financial regulator? Yeah. Make, make, it, make it an offer to the bookies. Yeah, Actually, I, make it make it a TAB thing. So you've got to go to if you want to bet on the, the movement of the market, go and do it with the bookie, and that says, okay, this is gambling outright. Yeah. Don't pretend it's investing. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. So when I when I say you know the risk reward should be apparently mm-hmm. you know very clear, crystal clear. Yes. And and anybody participating should should actually maybe you know, maybe write a small test to you know verify yeah. that you understand what what you're getting into. And I, I think uh, I think that makes all logical sense to me. And I, would, I, I, think I would I, love again, to see some numbers. I, I want to see the average. Win loss for say a CFD provider. There should be there should there should be a made to say ninety percent of our clients lost money using this product. <laughs> That's probably Fair, true. Fair disclosure, and then, and then let let people make their own choice. But if you know ninety percent of people lose money doing this thing, yeah. and you want to still do it? Then hey, I can't stop you. Yeah, be my guest. Yeah, well, well, I would still ban it, yeah. frankly. But no, I take your point. Yeah, but but I, I think this is a really good step on ASICs. You know, again, uh, when the regulator is doing stuff, and uh, we should fully applaud what they're doing. So they, again, we don't know exactly. So just to clarify, mm-hmm. we don't know what they're thinking. They just said that they're going to be Correct. looking into this. Correct. So this so-called more to come. toxic products. Yeah. More to come. But for the love of God, don't use CFDs. Just just don't. If you're using them now, just stop. And if you're going to think about it, please don't. If you want to give your money away, give it to a charity. Like, do something useful with it. Don't bloody give it to some knucklehead on the other side of a different computer screen who happens to get luckier than you. Just madness. I feel better now. This is very cathartic, this podcast, Doc. I love this podcast. The bad news is, mate, we're done. <gasps> that wraps us up for another week. But before we go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating, leave us a comment, leave us a review, tell your friends. We could do with a few more foolish fans like you. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. And before we wrap up, you can also get in touch with us on social media or by email. We're going to do a special mailbag episode in a couple of weeks' time. If you want to have a question, comment, uh, compliment, by all means, feel free to give us a compliment. You know, we, are we love people with fragile egos, so we can always do a bit of, a bit of, uh, a bit, you know, just a couple of comments. Doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU at TMF Scott P or at Anirban Mahanti. You can also hit us up on email info at fool.com.au or on Facebook where the Motley Fool AU there as well. Give us a comment, give us some feedback, ask us a question, leave us a compliment. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.